Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this week's episode, in his new memoir, Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back, author Elisha Cooper recalls how he and his family faced and survived his daughter Zoe's cancer. The act of reflection some years after the events is cathartic for Cooper. His work chronicles a life-changing period marked by terrifying uncertainty and resilience. He tells the story with humor and a palpable sense of awe. Elisha Cooper is a writer and illustrator known for his children's books, among them Homer, Train, Farm, and Beach. He spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on August 11th. Thanks to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Good evening, and welcome to the Elliott Bay Book Company. And I'm Karen Maida Almond, and I'm one of the events coordinators here, and I've been looking forward to this reading for quite some time. And tonight, of course, you're here to meet and hear from Elisha Cooper. Um, he's, his books have been beloved by children, parents, and teachers for many years now. In his books, Train, Farm, Homer, and Eight and Animal Alphabet are on their way to becoming modern classics. And there were some other ones, other ones also, including one about a cat named Magic. And unfortunately, that book's out of print. But very sad, but that, but also findable and another lovely book. Um, He's also known for writing books for adults, including his memoir, his first memoir, Crawling. Um, but tonight he's reading from Falling, A Daughter, A Father, and A Journey Back. And I have to say that I was captivated by this very wise and beautiful book, which is about so many things. The joy of fatherhood, the uncertainty and fear of nursing a very sick child through an illness that could prove fatal. But it's also about the ongoing daily life of a children's book writer and illustrator. And I think these books appear in our lives as if by magic, but the craft, the inspiration, and the artistry are sort of a mystery to us, and it's still mysterious. But through this book, we have a little bit of a look at this process. Finally, he also writes about the role that an independent neighborhood bookstore plays in the life of his family, and this is another big part of the story, and some of you here are part of our family as well, and so I'm, I'm glad to, to see you here tonight. And if you visited Three Lives Bookstore in New York City, um, which I have, um, much beloved independent bookstore, um, this book is, there's a little bit of love, a lot of love that goes out to this bookstore from this particular uh, writer. So, um, and also, Elisha Cooper has been on quite a tour of many independent bookstores um, throughout the country, and we're very glad that he's here with us tonight. So he'll do a little reading, he'll do a little talking, he'd love to answer any questions about this book and his earlier books, and afterwards he'll be signing books in the back of the room, and he'd be glad to um, meet you and answer your questions back there as well. So with that, thank you again, and please join me in welcoming Elisha Cooper. Thank you very much. Um, it is great being here, and it's true. This um, During the time that this whole book is about, I, I became friends with Toby Cox, who owns Three Lives and Company, and, and it's kind of like... Yeah. Hello, hello. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like a love letter to, well, this book is a love letter in many ways to my daughter's 
doctors. It's kind of a love letter to my family. But then I definitely get in a Three Lives and Co. shout out because I became very good friends with Toby Cox, who owns Three Lives. And he and I started drinking a lot of coffee together. And then we even went to England a few times to watch soccer together. And he and I kind of hung out. And he was somebody who I kind of checked in with during this time. We didn't talk about it much. Sometimes you need friends like that. And um, Toby's great. And, and he actually puts my book in his window. And that's actually how we met. Is I kind of came and asked him if I could put um, Crawling in his window. And he kind of... He was a little resistant, but he, he's, I bribed him, and, and he put it in. Anyway, I love independence, um, and I'm not just saying that to pander, um, even though I am. Okay. Um, what I think I'm going to do, this book has only been out a couple of months, and so I'm kind of making these presentations up as I go along, but I, what, I, what I've started to do is, like, these are very short essays, and without too much kind of preface, I'm just going to read one, and then maybe I'll talk a little bit, and we can ask questions, or because people often have stories, and we can um, talk a bit about it, and then I might read one more uh, essay, and, and have more conversation as we go along, and make this kind of a little organic, even though I'm going to read these two essays. They're two um, short essays. The first one is called It. I seem to have a, a, a fixation with, especially with my children's books, about doing one word books like train and someday I have to kind of broaden but but all of the essays in the book are, are, have just one um, one word to it and the first one is called it and this is how this book starts and some of you know this but some of you don't so I'm just going to dive in and this is the first essay it's called it it starts like this I'm picking up my daughter from day camp on the shores of Lake Michigan and taking her to Wrigley Field. Zoe likes the Cubs, so I thought I would surprise her with a game. It's a pretty day, and as we bike along the brownstone streets of Chicago's Lakeview neighborhood, my daughter on the bike seat behind me with her curly hair blowing in the wind, we are the vision of summer. We enter the crowd, and I buy two tickets behind home plate. Zoe is almost five, small for her age, so she sits on my lap so she can see better. As the game starts, I throw my left arm around her body, my hand cupping her side, and there, under her ribs, I feel a bump. I don't make much of it, though at night I mention it to Elise. It feels like an extra rib, though there isn't one on her right side. Neither of us is concerned. Nevertheless, in the morning I make an appointment with our pediatrician just to be safe. The next day I take Zoe to the pediatrician who feels Zoe's side and says the bump is probably a cyst and will go away, though the following day it feels bigger. On Saturday, we go to another game at Wrigley Field, this time with Elise and Zoe's little sister, Mia. The Cubs lose, as they do, though not this year. This year, they're great. <laughs> but everyone has a good time, and we take a family photo next to the field after the game. As a precaution, we had scheduled an ultrasound, so on Monday morning, Elise brings Zoe and Mia to a nearby imaging clinic. Elise is finishing her postdoc in Chicago and will start teaching at NYU in the fall. We are moving to New York in two weeks. I write children's books and have to sketch an illustration this morning for my next book. My desk in our second floor apartment looks over a quiet street of brownstones and shaded trees, and I'm standing next to my desk, sharpening my pencil and staring out the window when the phone rings. It's Elise, and her voice is quiet, and she is saying there's a tumor on Zoe's kidney, and I'm watching the leaves outside the window turn in the morning light, waving and bobbing in the breeze. Tumor, 
kidney, kidney tumor. And I listened to Elise, and I don't think the word cancer is said by either of us, and it's such a pretty day, and then I am out the door. We meet at the edge of our local park, Elise coming toward me with the girls and their jogger. We hold each other, and I gave each of my daughters a kiss on her head. They are happily playing with each other, and Elise and I hold each other again. The next days are blurry, but everything we do is very precise. We call our pediatrician. We arrange to meet the oncologist. We go to Children's Memorial Hospital across the park and meet the oncologist, a smiling man with small glasses. He tells us Zoe has a pediatric kidney cancer called Wilms tumor, a good cancer, a funny pairing of words. Surgery is scheduled as soon as possible, two days from now. We meet the surgeon who shows us on a monitor the tumor surrounding Zoe's kidney. It's a dark mass, unreadable. We make more phone calls, parents, insurers. When one of us is on the phone, the other is with the girls. Our minds are never where we are. Elise calls NYU and tells them we have to delay our move to New York. I call the publicist for a book I wrote about being a father. The paperback is coming out next month and tell her I won't be able to do all the things I said I was going to do. I hear in her silences she doesn't know what to say. I call friends back east. I reach one as he's driving to the city from Fire Island, and in the background I hear seagulls. We go to a beach on the lake with Zoe and some of her friends. As the girls play in the water, we talk with the parents, keeping our voices level, with nothing-to-see-hear expressions on our faces. At night, we tell Zoe the growth on her kidney needs to come out, and how that will happen, and that everything will be okay. Zoe looks at us and nods. We tell Mia that her sister needs to go to the doctor and that everything will be okay. Mia nods too, like her sister. We take baths. On Zoe's left side, we are able to see the tumor now. In two days, it has grown and is rearing out from under her ribs like something inside punching outward. We sit on the couch and tell bedtime stories. Once the girls are asleep, we call friends who are doctors, and at midnight we read and reread the Mayo Clinic website, our apartment illuminated by the soft glow of computer screens, numbers and percentages, probabilities of survival, numbers that, once learned, we will never not know. We are experts now. We know the numbers. Then we shut down our computers and lie in bed. Zoe's day camp is in a church across the street from Children's Memorial. On Thursday, we pick Zoe up. She's wearing her nursery school T-shirt. The drawing of the child on the shirt looks like Zoe with its curly hair and small smile. She looks no different than she did last week. We bring her stuffed tiger, and we walk across the street. Hours of drinking fluids and fasting, reading books in the bright light of the waiting room, plastic chairs circle the room, and down one corridor comes a distal hum. Empty halls seem to lead everywhere. Then it is time, and as Zoe is led away by a nurse through a swinging door, we tell her we will see her very soon. We wait. An hour. Five hours. The surgery takes longer than it is supposed to. A soundless television with breaking news hangs from the ceiling above us. Then we are summoned and meet the surgeon in a windowless room. The surgeon looks tired. There were complications. The tumor broke apart. The surgeon removed the tumor and the kidney and had to remove part of the colon, too. The cancer is stage three, which is not good. But I am not thinking about that, and we are led to Zoe, and we are able to see her, and she's asleep, so peaceful and so pretty, her head resting on her stuffed tiger, tubes spiraling out of her. I don't remember when she woke. I don't remember when I went to bed. In the next days, Elise and I are always with her, or shuttling home to be with Mia. We take turns, though at night it is mostly Elise. 
We set up camp in Zoe's room in the hospital. During the day, we go to the playroom, Zoe rolling on a stand that holds her IV and wearing a green gown that covers the horizontal stitches on her side. We bring Mia to visit. She clambers onto her sister's bed. They share pancakes. The days are hot, the evenings cool, and at midnight I bike through empty streets to the hospital, though it is only two blocks away. I try to sleep on a chair at Zoe's side. At four in the morning, we are woken by a pack of white-coated residents who watch us from behind clipboards. After six days, Zoe comes home. The next week, we bike downtown to Northwestern Memorial Hospital for radiation. The radiologist is round and South Asian and friendly. His four assistants draw on Zoe's belly, measuring to the millimeter in blue ink. Then she is slid flat into the radiation machine. Zoe's stuffed tiger goes in the machine, too. It's all in the biology, says the radiologist, as we wait in a control room bleeping with screens, giving me a big grin. Everyone here is so cheerful. On the bike ride home, Zoe throws up. We don't hear her at first. She's tough, the kind of child who doesn't want people to see her cry. In the next weeks, she has nine more radiation treatments, and she starts chemotherapy. We have more appointments at Children's Memorial. We call doctors at Memorial Sloan Kettering at New York. We call doctors at New York Presbyterian. We meet our oncologist. He tells us Zoe's histology is good, though I'm not exactly sure what that means. We plan our daughter's treatment and the continuing chemotherapy she will receive in the fall. It's going to be okay, the oncologist says, before we leave the last time, giving me a hearty handshake. Is it? What is it? This unspoken it. But we know what it is. It is everything, and it is all in the biology, and it is what we have become. And we would think more about it, but we have a birthday party to plan. We had to cancel Zoe's birthday party when she was in the hospital, so now we plan a shared birthday party for her and Mia. Elise bakes a cake with butterflies and bugs in the frosting, and our friends gather in the local park. The day is humid, and we lead the girls and their friends on a scavenger hunt through Oz Park, following clues we taped to the statue of the cowardly lion and the scarecrow. Then we eat pizza in the shade, just another festive, manic birthday party interrupted by a dog stealing the pizza. But even that doesn't matter, and the girls blow out the candles. Zoe is five, Mia is three. We slice the cake, and afterwards the children go to the playground with Elise as I clean up, and here's that dog again, a silvery Weimaraner, and this time he's going for the cake. What the hell? I look around for the dog's owner and see him standing to the side in shades in a button-down shirt. Hey, watch your fucking dog, I say. The man tells me to watch my language, tells me that children are present, tells me something about his being a lawyer, but I am reaching for a piece of cake. Throwing a piece of cake is not easy, especially one covered with frosting. As the piece of cake flies through the air, my throw underhanded and weak, I think about that second baseman who played for the New York Yankees a few years ago and couldn't make the simplest throw to first base, and the piece comes down halfway between me and the man, splattering the ground. I'm a lawyer, the man shouts. I'm a lawyer. Something about his emphasis makes me reach for a second piece. This time my throw is better, and the man grabs his Weimaraner and runs. As I stand watching him go, one hand smeared in chocolate, and the other, I realize, holding a frosting-covered kitchen knife. I wonder if there are elements of this story that may get away from me. We pack our apartment, boxes of books, pots and pans, the original art from my own books. I drive out to DeKalb County to the farm I've been sketching for my next children's book and tell the farmer I will return in the fall. 
I biked to the cafe across from the old movie theater in Lincoln Square where I wrote the book about first becoming Zoe's father. We pack our desks, fitting everything we own into the orange-ribboned U-Haul parked out front that will go to New York before us. I take trips up and down the stairs as Zoe and Mia play in a water sprinkler on the sidewalk out front. Our last weekend in Chicago, we go again to Wrigley Field. We sit near first base, so close to home we can hear the smack of the ball into the catcher's mitt. Our seats are not far from where Zoe and I sat last month. The difference between that day and this day, so large it resists metaphor. We move from before to after. We have no idea what will come. All we know is that everything is different and that we must go. Zoe gets tired and we leave early, though not before a player from the other team launches a ball deep into the bleachers and we see the ball thrown back. In the morning, we will be gone. After a last look around our empty apartment and a last wave to our street, we pack into our blue station wagon, Elise beside me in the front, Mia in the back seat with her sheep blanket, Zoe with her stuffed tiger, and we head south along Lake Michigan, the skyline slipping away from us in the rearview mirror. We drive away on a beautiful day in late summer, me and my girls. Goodbye, Chicago. So that's the first essay. That's it. Um, so just a few words before I jump into the next one. I, 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 I don't think I'm giving anything away to say that um, Zoe, I'm actually on a trip out to the Northwest with Zoe now and our family, and she is well. And she is going to... Bronx science next next year she's entering high school she's great she's strong um, so I'm giving away the ending but in a way that's that's kind of the point of this and in, in some ways because I was saying earlier that I think sometimes to be a witness to other people who are in trouble is sometimes harder than if it's yourself and Zoe here's the thing Zoe was always like a rock throughout this process what happened after the initial thing is we went moved to New York giving away a bit of the book but we moved to New York and she you know she has chemo and she goes through it and I think she never wanted to be different never wanted to leave school on Friday and her kind of her hair comes out and we kind of went through all that but she was always strong she was always this kind of this she was a little kid who just kind of made it through she was five she was tough she'd just kind of go through the oncology it was actually harder I think for kids who were like teenagers in the oncology clinic because they knew they were like the whole fault in our stars they knew what was going on but you know Zoe was tough Zoe was incredible tough she's still tough she can she can hold a plank now for five minutes she's like this she she can do a 550 mile she's crazy so she was all strong and in some ways I'm mentioning that because I think this she got well pretty quickly I feel, and I think it was, for me, it was, and again, for people who kind of are around people who are in trouble or you don't know how to help people, it took a lot longer. And what really kind of did me in were these scans. And every three months, she had to go back for scans. And that was just devastating for me because there I was going and, you know, our doctor always like, oh, she's going to be fine because, again, this was kind of a good cancer. But for me, it was like this moment of taking the scan and then waiting for that moment of saying, Okay, because if she if it came back negative, I mean positive, if there was a new tumor, that would have been it, you know. And so it was just this moment of saying, "Oh my God, my child's life is on the line." And that kind of recurrence of these three month scans, in a way, becomes this book because it's like going back. And I every three months, I had to kind of go through this Groundhog Day thing, or a family did. And then because of that, 
experience, I, after like five years of her kind of finally being well, I realized that those three months were kind of the essays that I was going to write. And I kind of used those essays to talk about things like art, because, you know, how did it change my children's books? books? Or how did it change, you know, as I was still playing Ultimate Frisbee, and how did it change my view of my body? Or how did it change anger? Because I was very angry about a lot of these things. Was it just that I was a New Yorker and angry at traffic, or was it this actually affecting me? I mean, there's one, um, one of the essays, I'm give away a little bit of the essay, but it was, it was a snowstorm, and Zoe and Mia were playing um, in the hallways. They were kicking a soccer ball with me, and I was home, and uh, kind of this guy down the hall yelled at them, and so I kind of came out, and, and I told him it was a snow day, and... He, he kind of slammed the door in my face, and so I was really pissed off. And so I, I, I knocked again, and I said, okay, we live in a long hall, hallway in New York. And I was like, okay, this end of the hallway will be for children playing soccer, and that end of the hallway will be for, will be for old men yelling. And I, I, I should have just kind of left it there, but then I kind of said, you know, but if you ever yell at my daughter again, I will kill you which was horrible, right? Like, what type of guy says that? And so I was mortified, and I, I, I went back, and I wrote an apology, and, and I typed it out, and I edited it. And this is actually a whole essay about words, because language becomes a very big thing with cancers, like how we deal with language, battling, and all these types of things. Anyway, so I write this apology, and I use the essay to kind of, like, make this huge space between the beginning and the end. But anyway, so I write the apology, and I type it out, I edit it, I type it out again, bring it down in the hall, and I slip it under his door and it was only like years later I realized I slipped it under the wrong door <laughs> so anyway we, we still made up but the point is is that sometimes our language doesn't work you know and especially with cancer so anyway so I was talking about I am talking I think or I hope in this book about how things like illness or worry or the love that we feel for people in our lives is affected um, and is specific, specifically affected by things like art or how art affects it, or and it affects art, or sports, or our bodies falling apart. So anyway, that's kind of what this book is about in some ways. I don't know. If you read it, you'll tell me what you think this book is about. Um, okay, I might just jump into another small essay. This is actually, again, everything is kind of linked around these three-month scans, and this is kind of towards the end when she is kind of, kind of better and okay, and this is towards the end of the book. And it's uh, an essay called Remember. And then maybe I'll just read this, and then maybe we can talk some more and ask questions or not. Okay. So this is probably three, or three years in. And now she's kind of, I've, I've uh, again, she's kind of better, but me less so. I think one of the, um, to kind of underline this again, one of the things that I wrote at least towards the end is, like, she got better, I got worse, or at least different. And I sort of feel that that was kind of, that's kind of what happened. Again, not to give away the, the point of the book. So this essay is called Remember, and I'm, I, I think I want to read this one because it's about the West Coast, and I'm on the West Coast. And it's about travel, too, and I'm on, on a trip. So here it goes. Remember. Above our kitchen stove is a watercolor of Bolinas Bay, the sheltered estuary north of San Francisco. Heather green hills shrouded in fog fill the painting's background. On the right is the blue of the estuary. In the foreground, there's a white farmhouse in a yellow meadow. When I drew this, I was standing by the side of a road looking across the meadow. Not far from me, out in the grass, was a bird. It was a great blue heron, 
head bent, one leg raised, motionless. As I sketched, the heron lurched forward and speared something with its beak. Then it took flight and began laboring its way across the meadow, and as it flew, I could see that the something was furry and wriggling, a mole probably. The heron and the mole were 50 feet in the air and heading toward the water when I heard a shriek and a hawk. Wings at its side dove out of a clump of trees and slammed into the heron. The heron let out an indignant squawk, wings and legs a jumble, and the mole fell from its beak. This was all happening quickly, but also slowly, in a sort of suspended state with each detail etched, and as the mole fell toward the ground, another hawk, it must have been the first hawk's mate, swooped in from the other side of the meadow and caught the mole with its talons just before it hit the ground, then flew away. I went back to my drawing. Both hawks were gone now, and so was the mole. The heron was beating its furious way back to the bay. The field was deserted. I remember thinking, that was crazy. That did not just happen. But it did. When I tell this story, I think first of the mole, because how wild would that have been to be burrowing in a tunnel, then skewered by a beak, then up in the air, then falling through the air, then caught and eaten. What a way to go. But this story also makes me think about how we remember Memories are unreliable as it is, malleable and messy, and become more so with time. The story of the heron is true, but I've told it so often I wonder what I am actually remembering. That foggy morning in Bolinas, or the last time I told a story in Manhattan. When memories are great, I think we remember the retelling. We heighten the dramatic and edit out the mundane, smoothing everything into one story. But what do we do with painful memories? I wondered this last month after Zoe and I returned from the hospital. Her scans were clear, and after lunch in the village, we met Elise and me at a place that makes goat milk ice cream. As we stood on the sidewalk with our cones, Elise's phone rang. It was Dr. Lee. That's, that was Zoe's uh, oncologist. The day was very hot, but there was a frozen moment standing there where I could tell from Elise's tone that something was wrong with Zoe's scans, a shadow. Everything turned out fine. Zoe had a cold and phlegm in her lungs had clouded the x-rays. She went back to the hospital a week later to be safe and her scans were definitively clear. But that moment on the sidewalk threw me backward with shot-in-the-gut remembrance to when Elise called me that morning in Chicago and we met near the park and held each other and tried not to show emotion to the girls where each sentence we said was deliberate with appointments and procedures carefully discussed though nothing we said or did not say could in any way hide what we both felt, terror. Painful memories have searing specificity. We scald our fingers on a stove when we are toddlers, experience heartbreak when we are teenagers, learn our child has cancer when we are parents, and these memories burn when we remember them. The research on memory points to findings we instinctively already know. We remember pain better than pleasure. Bad memories stick whereas it can be difficult to recall a pleasant evening with friends, let alone the name of our second-grade teacher. So how do we make good memories stickier and painful memories less raw? Maybe we start by reconsidering photography. Recently, I was looking through photographs I took when we lived in Chicago, the girls at the zoo, at the green market, on the shores of Lake Michigan, the smiling and interchangeable photographs of any family, I forwarded through these, and here we are in the woods of northern Wisconsin the spring before we moved to New York, bouncing along a dirt road in the back of a Jeep, Zoe and Mia grinning out at me. 
Zoe looks so healthy, it is breathtaking to look at this photo now and know a tumor was growing inside her. Two weeks after this photograph, she will be in surgery. Then, nothing. As I held down the slideshow button on my computer, my photographs stop. I stopped taking pictures. This response may have been drastic, but there's a divide between our lives and the images we use to portray them. We're always smiling when we look into a lens. We rarely photograph ourselves in tears, and we often don't even look at these images afterward. But life can't be this fantastic. All this happiness clouds our memories. This is why I love to travel. When we travel, we are more porous, more open to experience. Experiences are not always good. Travel gives us plenty of stories of disaster, but they are concentrated. Stronger memories are created as our other senses take over. The smell of eucalyptus trees in California when I was 10, the sound of country music on my car radio in Louisiana when I was 24, the feel of wind on my skin after I lost my stuffed raccoon on the moors of England when I was five. Years later, I hear the same song or smell the same trees, and that first moment comes rising back from inside me where it had been rooted. This rootedness takes place because of how the memory was first planted. I think I was able to remember that heron in Bolinas because I was on the road with a sketchbook and didn't have a camera. Our eyes open when we travel, other senses follow, and the experience enters us and becomes cellular. Travel, and our memories of it, is also something we give. That's my hope when I travel with my daughters, that the taste of gelato will be more than taste, that its sweetness will carry them back to that piazza in Florence, and they'll hear the beep of a passing Vespa and feel the heat of an Italian summer all combining so that years later they may remember how it was to be traveling with their family when they were young. Traveling gives memories intensity, but we don't have to travel. Daily rhythms create memories, walks to school, breakfasts around the kitchen table. This is why I take my daughters to cafes after school and we drink hot chocolate and sit in the same seats and look out the same windows. Our days accumulate. Painful memories, like seventh grade, are unavoidable. I don't know if we can ever unremember the bad. The memory of that phone call in Chicago and the memory of the ultrasound room in New York Presbyterian will always stay with me. But maybe our good memories can sit next to our painful memories and watch over them, cushion them, and soften their jagged edges. Good memories hold us. We create them every day by walking out the door or looking across a field. Surely time and forgetfulness help too, but I like to think we are protected by the memory of chocolate. Sometimes I think we are memories. I mean, humans are memories. We are the stories we tell and the experiences we share. In what must be the greatest miracle of chemistry, we are able to enter into the memories of those we love. We burrow into them, down into their cells. In this way, I hope I can nestle into my children, into the smallest part of them, and will always be with them. At the end of the summer, after Zoe turns eight, we drive to Maine to a camp on a lake near the Canadian border. I came here as a boy, and always as summer turned to fall, warm days, cold nights, a time that looked both forward and back. Before we drove home each year, I would jump in the lake and t make a resolution, picking one word to say as I leapt. If I was getting ready for the football season, the word would be something like hustle, though in recent years the word has been clear. I brought Elise to this lake after we met. It mattered to me that she liked it as much as I did. 
We came throughout our 20s before the start of the school year. One summer, as we canoed in the middle of the lake, I asked her to marry me. Zoe and Mia come with us now. We do many of the things I did when I was young. We swim naked, the water tingly on our skin. We kayak to an island and pick blueberries, though there aren't as many as there used to be. We see a bald eagle. We see waterfowl. We look for moose at the water's edge, though we have yet to see one. In the evening, we eat hot dogs and baked beans and ice cream. I build a fire while Elise reads the girls who curl in blankets and listen. The smell of burning wood spills out the cabin's chimney into the evening air. The sun dips over the mountains, turning the sky into pink ribbons. We hear the call of loons. Shooting stars almost make sound as they cleave the cold black night. I spread all this out for my children as if I could fill them. The morning before we drive home, we walk down to the wooden pier that sticks out into the lake. Across from us, we see the eagle perched in the branches of its tree. A flock of Canadian geese glides by in the shallows, readying to fly south, and farther out is a family of loons. The sky is so big here. We jump in the lake one last time, and as we wrap in towels, I put my hands on my daughter's backs and point out a solitary shape beating its way across the water. Look, a bird. There we go. So I guess that's a little bookend, beginning of the book and the end, even though it goes on. Um, I could say more, but I'll just open it up if anybody has any questions or thoughts or experiences or anything they have. Yeah. I wonder how Zoe feels about Oh, that is the question. I, um, yeah. No, no, and it's a great question because um, that I think a lot about. And, and trust me, we, I, if we had hours and bottles of wine, we would go into this. Because one of the things I thought about is, like, I mean, there's the whole issue of betrayal, right, when you write about somebody else. And Janet Malcolm, you know, famously writes that, you know, whenever you're writing about somebody else, you betray them. And I went into this knowing I couldn't do this because I love my daughter so much, and I wasn't going to do that. I mean, if anything, I think in my writing where Janet Malcolm might be right, is I betray myself. You know, I'm trying to send myself up and my worry. But Zoe, I protect. And there was never any reason that I wouldn't because she's great. And so I'm writing about her accurately. Um, likewise with Elise and with Mia. Um, and again, it's kind of a love letter to the doctor, so I don't think I'm betraying them. But I am talking about Zoe. And one, so one of the things I actually did is I asked her permission, even though it was kind of hard for a kid to give permission to a, a father. So I, I recognize that. But I also, like last summer, once I'd written it, and she knew that I was doing it, we sat down, and she was on one side, and Mia's on the other, and I read the whole book to them out loud, and they, were, they would kind of edit it, and it's like, that's not true, and, <laughs> and that's terrible, and why did you say this? And it was great. It was actually great to read it out loud. You could kind of get the rhythms, you know, but they also, you know, they would kind of I think what got Zoe the most was there's this one time in the fall, once we just moved to New York, where she would go into this hot, this, to get hot chocolate, because I was outside with Mia and the jogger, and I would send her in with a 20, and sometimes she didn't bring back the money. No, the, no the, the, she didn't bring back the, the change, right? And so they, she became like known as the big tipping girl. And so she was like, you cannot put, put that in, because she's like really good at math now. And so she's really kind of <laughs> indignant that I wrote that. So that's what she cares about more. I think, I mean, she's been very... She is private about this part of her life, and so I don't, I know I'm exposing her, but I also try to, as much as I can, protect her. Um, I think writers, it's a, it's a 
bad excuse, but I kind of believe it that you writers write. You know, we write about our lives, and you know, I have no problem sending up and destroying and and somebody who annoys me. You know, and I, I and I will do that in journalism, and I'll do that in in even in the book. There's like a guy, you know, I ran over in a football game, and I'll, I'll write that. But her, I'm going to protect. So how she feels, you know, and uh, you know, she might not like it when she's 35, 40, 50, and that's her that's her right, and I welcome that. Actually, I, I think in some ways she should not totally like it because I hope she's smart enough to have a divergent opinion. Were there some edits after you read it to the girls and they responded? Um, well, we argued very few. I, I was like, no, no, no. I mean, th- there were definitely. I, she would, I, you know, there were little things, but and they would remind me, oh, I was wearing a pink shirt. So it was things like that often, right? It was like, I never wore that, or I was... It was it was more kind of small things, which actually then became great because they there was a little bit of collaboration, so they definitely helped. They were good editors. They were great. They're a little ruthless. So does Mia, Mia feel neglected? Does she need a book now? Do you need to write a children? Oh, not at all. No, Mia. Mia is okay. So here, Mia. If Zoe is crazy strong. Mia is, um, so Mia is a dancer in School of American Ballet, so she's in like the Nutcracker and all those types of things and performs in front of thousands of people. Oh, I I actually wrote a thing, uh, wrote a piece in the Times in December about backstage at the Nutcracker where I was actually drawing her and stuff. So she, Mia gets her own press and she has no, she, she's a magnet for attention and she doesn't need her own thing from me. Um, but she's also, you know, the second kid, so she has to fight in her own ways. And, I, and maybe that's why, you know, she carves out her own space. But she's fine, I hope. She probably has a problem with me, too. But she'll tell me again when, when she's 35. Or earlier. She tells me now. Do you think they're honored? They might. Maybe. But you know what? They could care less. I mean, especially with my children's books, there was a moment. You know, now my, the girls are reading they're reading books for adults, right? They've aged out. And, but around three or four years ago, there was that kind of sad moment where there was like, oh my God, they don't care about my kids' books at all anymore. And so they could care less that I write books, really. And, but they actually then kind of switched almost to being helpful editors. You know, they would kind of look at my stuff. I did this alphabet book and they would kind of look at it on the wall and I was like, that's not a goat. Or you really <laughs> painted that badly. You know, so they're much more, they are nonplussed about what I do. Which is awesome. Thank goodness. You know, yeah, they, yeah, they're, they're healthy 14 and 12-year-old girls who could care less about their father, if that makes sense, right? I mean, they, yeah. Yeah, uh, how long did it take before I could write um, about this? Well, I, I think certainly the first couple of years I wasn't thinking about this. But, but then it started to sneak in, and I think in some ways one of the more tumultuous times was when I, she was going through these scans, and I probably was starting to think about it, but three years, and I'd get kind of thrown back into the mix of what these, thing, these feelings were. I didn't feel I could do this until essentially this book, the, the time frame of this book was over, almost four and a half, five years in, when I was like, okay, now, now she's out of the woods. She doesn't even go back to the doctor now, Right. She goes back to Dr. Lee and has the gossip once a year. She doesn't have scans or anything. But, yeah, it, 
it was five years in where I started to take notes. I would go off on, I'd be doing my children's books like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then on Friday I would bike over to Brooklyn and I would, I would just kind of sit with my little notepads and I would start taking notes on what had happened. And I'd be kind of there and getting weepy and just kind of going through stuff and starting to remember all this. So it was really, it had, the illness had, I mean, cancer in a way is never over, but I, I like to think that it is for her. And I think in some ways statistically it is, but she had to be out of, the, out of danger. And then I could start writing. And then it was, it was kind of like a year of taking notes. And, and um, my wife, Elise, is a psychologist. She, just, she teaches at NYU. And she not, doesn't counseling stuff, but I, I'm sure there were times in, during the time frame about this book where I, she would have encouraged me to have therapy. But I think my therapy was writing, you know, and was trying to think about this. And I would... I would go to, um, I went to Stumptown. I think Stumptown's out of Portland, but there's a Stumptown in, in a totally pretentious hotel, the Ace Hotel in New York, and it's really dark. There's like a big elk on the wall with like stuffed ferrets and badgers and, and all these kind of annoying Silicon Valley guys who are kind of working at this big table, and I would kind of sit there. And what's great about it is it's very dark, and I would kind of sit there in the dark, and it was near really good coffee, sometime coffee, and there was a bathroom, and it was dark, so nobody could see me kind of crying. And I'd be sitting there kind of starting to type up these notes that I'd taken for a year. So it took time. It took a long time. I mean, and now, you know, Zoe, she's 14, and this happened when she was five. So it took, like, again, five years of her, of the treatment, and then really four years of me writing this thing, or, and notes, and then writing it. And again, darkness and coffee and stuffed badgers helped. I don't know. The, the last thing didn't help. It goaded me on. But then it was at that point. When it was time, when she wasn't sick anymore. Yeah, I mean, that might be making... I'll say yes, even though it might make it too simple. I mean, I mostly I think I wrote it, I don't know if I wrote it to heal, I just wrote it to kind of f- figure some of these things out. Because I, I was very, I was curious about like wh- how this had affected my painting or how it had affected my ideas about my own body playing sports. And how it, and why, and I think, large part I think I wrote about it was like why I did it make me so angry you know I was so I was a live wire and got into confrontations on the street with people and I was kind of a you know I still am a kind of a jerk anyway but how much of it was attributable to this and I couldn't figure that out and in a way I don't even know if I did but I tried to write this book to try to figure that out because I was so upset that this had happened and so worried for her and I had never felt here's the thing in so many parts of my life and maybe this is true of other people too I felt that I had control I felt I had control with my children's books I could paint what I wanted I, I, I'm kind of a cocky painter I know I can paint certain things and I feel that about, way about words and I feel that way about sports and here was something I had no control over absolutely no control and I couldn't do anything about it I was helpless in the face of it and that question was what 
kind of drove me into writing this, fi- trying to figure that out. I, mean, it, there, I still have no control over it, and maybe it was kind of like a, a giving in to that helplessness in a way. But I was trying to use words to kind of figure out what, what do you do in those situations? Because I think the idea of like how we help others in need is like is central to. I just read reread the Norman MacLean's a River Runs Through It, which is kind of overwrought in some ways, and everybody knows it now, but I remember loving it as a kid. And I also remember about the central thing of that book is, like, how does he help his brother? And he can't, right? And there's, it seems to me that that is this moment that runs through all of humans' dealings with other humans, and it's why, it's why I kind of feel that this is not a book about cancer so much as it is about you come up against some things in life where you're like, fuck, what do you do? with this situation. Oh, I just swore, and I know I'm on radio. Um, and, but what do you do? I don't know. For me, I wrote. And I think people, they turn to dance. They turn to, they turn to church. They turn to family. They turn to cooking. There are so many responses. And in a way, I think, I mean, I love that line. And well, actually, when we get back to New York, I promised the girls that we're going to try to go see Hamilton. They know all of it. But I love there's this line where he, where, Lin-Manuel Miranda talks about um, Hamilton writing his way out. And I love the idea that you use words to write your way out of something. And I think that was maybe true for me. But again, I recognize that for other people, there are so many responses to these things. And everybody has, like, maybe it's just family. Maybe it's a prayer group. Maybe it's, maybe it's, I don't know, I'd say chocolate. Maybe, who knows what it is? Who knows? I think in a way, it's like what we're all trying to figure out for ourselves. I don't know. This was what it was true for me. And a huge part about this for me was like even gratitude, just feeling just so lucky. I don't know. I still, I do not know. But I think that everybody tries to, when we're faced with these things, what do you do? We, we at least look for some type of answer for ourselves. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. So I love all your children's books, but Homer, Homer, I don't know, there's something about Homer that is just remarkable. Thank you. And, and you mentioned, I think in the conversation you guys were having, that you were writing it while this was unfolding. Right, and I'm sure and it's affected by that, which is one of the things I'm... That's what I'm thinking, you know, is that why... Did, did something come forward in you? I think I'm that old dog. And actually, what's interesting is that... So, okay, um, if anybody knows my books, they would know that I'm terrible painting faces and all I do is draw little circles and I don't do faces this is the only book where I've ever drawn humans faces and that's actually Zoe and Mia are in the book I actually had to draw their faces so there there definitely is a kind of you could break it down that yes I'm this old dog watching his kids go out in the world and then welcoming them back and it is about time passing that book can you read this to us it's very short and it's very very touching should I? I will I will I will read it and actually, yeah, Homer is the name of a uh, dog I had growing up. Okay, I will read this book. Homer. Story time. Story time. See, and that's, that's Zoe, and this is Mia. And that's me. <laughs> the dog. Homer sits on the porch. What does he want to do today? Chase and race around the yard? No thanks. Explore the field? See, there's Mia the younger. Thank you, but no. Walk to the beach and play in the sand? That's Zoe. No, you go. Swim in the waves? That's Elise, by the way. 
and I'm so, I'm so bad with faces, I put a hat kind of over her head. And then I, I crop my face out here. That is my bike right there. Run to the market. No, no, I'm fine right here. This is a shout out also to Blueberries for Sal, for people who know that. It's like you show everything that happens and then you kind of pan out. So that's my Blueberries for Sal moment where you actually see everything. There's the beach, there's the house, the clouds, there's me. Somebody also said that all books are uh, somebody comes to town or somebody leaves town. And this is basically that, where actually I wanted to subvert that too by having the protagonist stay exactly where he was and have everybody else go around. So I wanted to kind of flip that of, of the hero going out. I just wanted the hero to stay put. Okay. The chasing and racing was very tiring. Yes, I can tell. The field was full of wind and flowers. Hmm, sounds lovely. They are all bringing him gifts, right? The beach was beautiful. The sand was warm. I've also painted this in such a way that the whole, you have the sun going across so that now shadows are kind of streaming the other direction. I can imagine. The waves were big and wild. We got so many good things to eat. Oh, I'm so glad. Another, I feel like I'm giving a book talk, but a little thing here. The great thing about where the wild things are, at the beginning is you have these small images that kind of get bigger until you see the whole thing. And I'm very consciously mimicking that by having these square panels get bigger and smaller in the same way that he does. Anyway. The waves were big and wild. We got so many good things to eat. Oh, I'm so glad. Do you, do you need anything? No. I have everything I want. And there's the breath before the end. The double breath. Or as noted, you have the view from the beginning of the book. I have you. And that's it. So, sadness. I sort of feel that a lot of my books are a little sad, and I think it might be because I grew up on a farm and our animals died constantly. <laughs> and it's true, and so a lot of my animal books are about that kind of sadness. And, but I think what's, uh, you know, this book about falling, this book about my daughter is, you know, is a different type of sadness in a way that this was just, you know, maybe a boy's sadness about lost animals. This was, this was different. Other questions? In my family, we didn't read that set. We read it as... Oh, really? We have, a, oh, we have everything. We have, you know, I have you. Even the old dog, we can't really use the porch. It's got everything. I'll, I'll take that. It, well, it is happy, but here's the thing. I would argue <laughs> that sadness and happiness twine often. And that there's something that when they kind of come together, there's that kind of frisson. Is that frisson or whatever when between the two? And I think that that's often a space where I like to write or even paint. You know, I think that there's something where something is so beautiful it can make you sad, or you can kind of find beauty. You know, sadness and beauty, and they they really kind of relate to each other. I think. Yeah, I feel that. You know, and I, I think that you feel that when you just. I mean, this is a, maybe a little cliche, but maybe that's why. Is that, you know, if you see a, you know, I was taking the ferry from Victoria here today, and there are moments of just seeing islands or, or boats going by. It was just like, oh, God, that is so beautiful. 
but it was kind of like there's a little bit of sadness because it's like try to remember this speaking about memory you know I would be like I want to remember how beautiful this is right and so there's a there's a little bit of I don't know maybe I should write an essay about this right but I think we all feel that you know you, you just have these moments of just heart heartache and you know, where heartache is a good thing and heartache is a bad thing and I think kind of you know returning to this this book and something I'm kind of very aware of and I, I feel I always need to acknowledge is that sometimes these things don't turn out well and I was very aware that when we were at the oncology clinic there were kids who didn't make it you know and so maybe that's why I'm kind of aware of that kind of that the twined sadness and happiness is because the heartbreak can sometimes come back to where we are okay, but sometimes it doesn't happen that, that way. I don't know if I could have done this book had things not turned out okay. And so sometimes things just suck, and I don't know what we do about that as writers or as artists or as humans. I mean, maybe, I, I, think, I think basically we grieve and we recover at some point, I hope. I don't know, but I don't know. I mean, sometimes things are just bad. And I kind of wondered about that, even in writing this. Like, what happens when our wounds don't get better, you know? I don't, I don't know if we, I have an answer to that. I, I think I was trying to write about an experience where it did get better because I was trying to kind of give some hope. Because I think we have that potential to have things get better. But I certainly don't know what to do when they don't. But maybe it's the same thing. Maybe we just keep on hoping, or maybe things get better. I don't know. Maybe you guys have answers for that. Yeah. Other than it's this is what it is to be human, right? Maybe. Our family, my family, had some serious losses when the kids were younger, and I felt like my two sons had older souls. Mm. Right. That makes sense. Uh, but their wives are going through life because of some of these encounters. And I thought, why, you know, the 19 year old shouldn't have to do this and this and this. Understood. And so do you think Zoe and Mia also have some of that? Because no, no, not at all. <laughs> They're very unwise. No, no, no. I. Um, they're too young. Though I don't know about Zoe. Again, I'll talk to her when she's older. You know, she might have, I think that she has a certain toughness maybe because of this, but maybe, again, it's because she's tough because who she is. Um, I just don't know about them because, again, they were five and three. Um, I, I think, I, I hesitate to say that I'm, that I'm a better person because of this, but I know I was much more immature before, and now I'm just a little bit immature. <laughs> no, I'm just less, I'm less, you know what I'm saying. I was terrible before, and now I'm a little less terrible. No, but I, I, I feel that, I feel I have a bit more balance and wisdom now, but I'm still not very wise. <laughs> But that's the thing. I think that comes back to like 
could it have been just growing up, you know, or time? I sometimes think that time has a way of healing things. But I also like to think that there are things that we can do. Maybe. Any last questions before I... Totally. Yeah, no, no, no. That was that was one. I mean, I think playing with language is always fun. You know, I, I anybody who's a writer knows that that there's a, there's just that high from just nailing a metaphor, or turning a phrase, and that even when I was, I suppose, writing about things that were worrisome and sad. I was happy to be working on that. But then there also, there were, there were a lot of times it was just um, fun. I mean, one of the essays I wrote about was about humor, because I actually think humor is intimately related to grief, you know, and how we deal with trauma and things like that. And I wrote an essay about, I got to meet um, Maurice Sendak, I was just citing him, and it's also because I just was on a Maurice Sendak fellowship where I got to hang out in his studio this spring, which was really cool. But he, I met, when I met him one time, he, he was this outrageous guy and he was swearing all the time, and I was trying to think, like, why is this guy, you know, he's so funny and he's swearing, and I think it's because he was, like, you know, he was, sh- he was just kind of yelling at fate in some ways. And I think that there's some, there's some part of humor that is, it's not even funny, it's just kind of, like, you know, getting at things. So I, I like being able to put as much humor as I could into this book and not not make this, you know, a sad book, make it kind of like a barbaric yawp of a book where we're, I was trying to kind of yell at things. And, I, and there are a lot of little moments that I had fun writing, like even that moment about the heron. That was crazy. And I kind of had fun writing of that. And I had fun writing about the cake, you know. <laughs> And I have a whole bunch of stuff about being a children's book author. And, you know, I love writing children's books, but children's book world can be really kind of annoying and strange sometimes. And I remember even doing this, the Homer book, where I had an editor asking me, like, okay, what was the dog's motivation? What does he want? And, like, this whole thing. And, and my response in the essay was, well, he wants to lick his balls. And then I write that I didn't say that because, you know, with children's books, there could be, people get so earnest and so pretentious. And I actually don't even feel like I'm a part of that. Um, one of the things I love about that Maurice Sendak said is, is when asked why he wrote children's books, he, was, he just didn't think of them as children's books. And I don't, actually don't think of my children's books as children's books so much as I think of them as stories and looking at the world and trying to just draw. And in the same way, you know, these are essays, but they're just essays. And, you know, when we kind of break down, okay, this is a children's book and this is a YA book and this is an adult book, then you have to think about, like, what is, what is Charlotte's Web, right? You know, that's, a, that's about death, for instance, for, for starters, but it's also an adult book, but is it a YA book? Who knows what that is? It's just a book. So sometimes just writing is writing is writing. And I definitely wanted to, one of the things about the humors, I wanted to kind of puncture some of that, that kind of, children's book piety. I think there's a lot of that in my world. Where it's like, oh, let's write a good book about sharing. (laughs) And taking turns. And I just want to be like, oh, screw this. (laughs) 
I, w- I want to see if that book gets published. <laughs> That's the problem. Yeah. But I do. I actually, that was, that's one of the reasons I actually do love writing children's books is I very, I take actually, as much as I kind of, I complain about children's books, I actually take it very seriously. I think that good children's books, when they really are kind of funny and strange, are just wonderful, you know, and there's a reason for it. And I think it's precisely when they're not talking down to kids. The best children's books are take kids seriously. Uh, well, just a couple I've mentioned today. I mean, just like the blueberries for Sal. I mean, and maybe that's just because it's beautiful and it's funny. Who knows? But I just, I usually think all those those sharing books are terrible, whatever they are, you know? And the books where it's just like a, a writer, where she is taking on something and having joy with that writing, those are the, usually the ones that work. I don't know. You know it. You know, you, you know a book that's trying to pull one over on somebody and one that's not. You can just sense it. So, actually, my next, my next children's book is about, uh, well, it's about death and cats. Oh, wow. Yep. When's that coming? In the winter. Death and Cats. That's what the, ti- the title is. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> Death and Cats. Actually, I should say it's true. My editors, all of whom I love, we often sit around and talk about um, titles for children's books that, you know, terrible titles and like things like Death and Cats. But this one is actually called uh, Big Cat, Little Cat. But there's actually, you know, there's a cat that dies and another cat and... And it's, and it actually, it's because we had a, my, uh, Zoe and Mia had a kitten that died, and so I just thought I'd write about that. And I guess you can tell me whether or not I succeeded in having shoulds in it. I hope not. We'll see. Done? Wow. That's, That's a good? Okay. Oh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Elisha Cooper spoke at the Elliott Bay Book Company on August 11th. Thank you again to Jenny Cecil Moore for our recording. Tune in again soon. Good night. Good night.